This is the 2018 Reseda Spring Study Day. Our speaking brother is Brother Khan Mitsos of Australia. Our overall theme for the weekend is Mary, the Handmaid of the Lord. This is class number four, entitled, Woman, What Have I to Do with Thee? And it's based on John chapter 2. Brother Khan. Thank you again, Brother Tony, and uh, good afternoon, uh, brothers and sisters and young people and friends. It's uh, certainly been lovely to have some time to spend with uh, some of you conversing over lunch, and uh, I was very pleased to see that there are some she-bears amongst our audience, and it made me very very happy to know that um, there are some wonderful mothers who um, have appreciated the need uh, of being the nourishers and protectors of their young ones. And um, I must say, if you uh, look at some of the scriptural records of some mothers that are mentioned, you'll know how influential they have been, even when the fathers of a particular child, and Ahaz um, is one of those, because Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah, and uh, Hezekiah was a type of the Lord Jesus Christ. His mother's name was Abiah, and her name means Yah is father. So here's a situation where Ahaz was not really the father of Hezekiah, even though he was the genetic father, the real father, the scripture credits by the meaning of his mother's name, Yahweh was the real father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, of course, is the subject of the prophecies of Isaiah and becomes a wonderful type of the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so we're commencing in John chapter 2 with the wedding at Cana, and I'm only going to be brief in looking at um, uh, this, which is the first sign of John's Gospel, just to develop our um, understanding of Mary and her relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. So what is uh, interesting about the record, and we know that the record of the signs of John were all about the significance of the events, not just the amazing miracle per se, We know that, so therefore we're not looking for the amazing miracle of the water turned into wine. We're looking at what is the principle, what is the simeon, the significance of the wedding at Cana. Well, we know that it was the third day, but it was also the seventh day because four days are mentioned in John's first chapter and both of those numbers are significant. Three is the number of resurrection and new life and seven is the covenant number. Now we have a marriage, but strangely, the two most important people in this marriage are not mentioned. So we don't know who the groom is, and we don't know who the bride is, but we do actually know that someone became the groom. And we know that it was the groom's responsibility to provide wine for the guests, and the groom, that's the unnamed groom, failed in his responsibility. And who therefore assumed the position of the groom in the sign of John's gospel and his second chapter? Why, it was the Lord Jesus Christ. And there was no bride mentioned, but there was a woman. And what's woman? Isha. What does that mean? Taken out of Ish. It was the name given to Eve when Yahweh formed her and brought her to Adam, and they became married in the sight of God. 
And he said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. This is the parable. This is the significance of John chapter 2 and the wedding at Cana. Now, Cana means redeemed. And so it's perfectly suitable to find that the mother of Jesus was in need of redemption because that's what the name Cana means. And she was also of Galilee. And you know, we quoted, I think, and I can't remember now whether it was in our earlier sessions this morning or last evening. It might have been last evening. That in Matthew chapter 4 and verse 14 to 16, Galilee is called the region and the shadow of death. And that's a quotation from Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1 and 2. So here's Mary in this predicament. The mother of Jesus was there. Where? She was at a marriage in Cana of Galilee. So she was, Joseph of course, uh, being absent from the record. We assume that he had fallen asleep before the the record of John chapter 2. She's now in need of redemption from the land and the region of the shadow of death. That's where she was. And Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage as we read in verse 2. And we know that the bridegroom had fallen short. Uh, they wanted wine. They, the, the, the wine ran out. And uh, therefore the unnamed, uh, unnamed groom actually comes to represent the deficient law who was ordained as a redeemer of the nation of Israel but fell short. Same as the unnamed kinsman in the story of Ruth who couldn't redeem Ruth and Boaz, the strong man, The Ish, and that's what Boaz's name means, became the redeemer of Ruth. We've got that parable working out here. So the bridegroom had fallen short of his responsibility and here we have the mother of Jesus saying to Jesus in verse 3, they have no wine. Now, we've already considered the Lord Jesus Christ and how he was, uh, and it's at the end of this chapter, so we're in the same vicinity, scripturally speaking, how he was able to read people's minds, assess the situation, because all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. He was able to make an assessment of the situation, and in his response to Mary's observation, he acted in a way that we might feel is a little bit strange. But remember, we're talking about somebody who knows and has insights far beyond our insights. And even the, the statement of Mary in verse 3, to me, is quite telling. Do you know, Mary didn't say, Jesus, can you produce some wine? She didn't even have a request. She just simply stated the need. And, you know, in that I think there is an insight into what Mary had come to understand about this son of hers, the Lord Jesus Christ. That all she needed to do was to tell him the need and he would respond if it was, uh, if it was something that he was able to respond to. And in terms of the family and domestic sphere, she must have relied on him somewhat as the oldest of her children in order to care for her in the absence of Joseph, who was the guardian and spiritual head of the family. That's all she said. And you know, sometimes in our struggle to express our needs to the Father in prayer, sometimes 
we don't realise that all we need to do and all Jesus had asked of people who besought him, what wilt thou that I should do unto thee? And they stated their need. And we can trust that when we take our requests to the Father, maybe we could come to this beautiful reference and it's in First of John, John's Gospel. And this is a, a wonderful um, source of encouragement for us. In First of John 5 verse 14, this is the confidence we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us with the proviso according to his will. This is the confidence that we have in him. And if we know that he hear us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. And even if all we can do is express our need, the Father even can interpret groanings, as Paul tells us in Romans 8, which can't be put into words. The Spirit makes intercession. Well, they wanted wine, and the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And in the response, Jesus said unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now, we would appreciate that the term woman is not what we may expect Jesus to use as he addresses his mother. We might have expected him to respectfully and affectionately call her mother, but he doesn't, even though the record says the mother of Jesus, verse 1, the mother of Jesus, verse 3, his mother, verse 5. He calls her woman. And that was deliberate. He was not being disrespectful, but he was being truthful about a situation that she needed to understand. And this was the second of the piercings of the sword. It was uncomfortable for her to hear this because in the Greek, if I can paraphrase the, the words of the Lord to, to Mary, he said, woman, on what basis are we related together? What between you and me? Mine hour is not yet come. And that hour of which he spake was the hour that came upon him in the city of Jerusalem on the 14th day of Abib, three and a half years hence. It was the hour of his crucifixion. And we're going to come to that. Well, actually... That comes into the Sunday school session tomorrow morning when Mary stands at the foot of the cross and Jesus says, Woman, behold thy son. So we'll consider that with the Sunday school tomorrow. But in the parable, what is going to happen when that hour arrives? When that hour arrives, Jesus is going to be put into a deep sleep and his side would be opened. And from the water and blood that oozed out of his side, there was going to be two elements that were going to form an ecclesial bride. And she was going to be brought to Adam, the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they were going to be divinely related together in marriage. That's the parable that starts here with these words, woman. He he wanted her to understand that the natural relationship that they shared had to be transcended by a spiritual relationship. And there was no value of that natural relationship unless it led to the spiritual. And so Mary was going to try and understand what that meant. 
as the piercings of the sword would pierce into her soul, as we know Simeon had said to her, so that her thoughts and the thoughts of many hearts might be revealed. Jesus was ever wanting people to think about the spiritual. And this was um, a, a beautiful parable in the redemptive work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in providing for the wine, he provided better wine than they had experienced before. And that better wine is the better wine of the new covenant. Because there was wine, of course, as part of the old covenant. We spoke about that earlier in the meal and drink offering. There was bread and wine offered under the old covenant. But that was only a shadow of the real bread and wine, which was the embodiment of the word of God in Jesus Christ by which man and God would be brought into fellowship. An eternal union, and that wasn't going to happen until his hour was come. That's when Ishar would be brought together with Ish in the beautiful parable of the marriage. And Mary comes to represent, Mary the Lord's mother comes to represent the Lord's natural mother, the nation of Israel. And for those of you who are interested, Mary Magdalene in John 20 comes to represent the Gentile bride that's incorporated as the bride of Christ because she also has, uh, in that beautiful chapter of chapter 20, has been uh, revealed to by the Lord Jesus Christ, called woman and united together in a figurative marriage in a garden. John 20 is in a garden. So there is uh, some beautiful lessons to be learned out of the... uh, this episode and the significance of this which Jesus laid out for his redemptive work that he would achieve on behalf of all of his people and of course that would involve Mary, his mother. I'm just going to leave it there because we can spend more time on the significance of the second sign but we're not going to go get through our material if we do so please excuse me. Uh, maybe we can look at one reference. Second of Corinthians 3 is a beautiful reference to put next to John chapter 2 about the best wine left till last because in 2nd of Corinthians 3 the Apostle Paul contrasts the new and the old covenant in some uh, brilliant uh, expressions showing how much greater the new covenant was in Jesus Christ than the old covenant. So if we uh, maybe look at verse uh, 7 if the ministration of death written and engraven in stones was glorious, and there was, there was glory in the old covenant, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was done away, how shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? For if the ministration of condemnation be glory, much more the ministration of righteousness, exceed in glory. For even that which was made glorious had no glory in this respect by reason of a glory that excelled it. For if that which was done away was glorious, much more that which remaineth is glorious. You've left the best wine till last because it was better than anything that they had ever experienced before. That was the new covenant in Jesus Christ. So we come back to John chapter 2 and what happens after the wedding at Cana is we see the family together from verse 12 in Capernaum. After this he went down to Capernaum. Let me just see what the next slide is because I can't see it. 
unfortunately, on my screen, but that's okay. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brethren, as well as his disciples, and they continued there not many days. And during that time, there must have been opportunity for the disciples that Jesus had called and his mother and his brothers and sisters to enjoy time together. And it is a wonderful thing to see the family united together as they came to appreciate the commencement of the Lord's ministry They would have seen his baptism at the banks of the River Jordan and uh, ushered in to the nation as its Messiah with the voice of God. This is my beloved son, my beloved son, in whom I'm well pleased. And here he is on the commencement of his ministry. And Mary and his brothers and sisters, his brethren, the Greek word adelphi encompasses brothers and sisters. So for those of you who weren't aware, when it says his brethren... That is brothers and sisters. So the Greek word encompasses both brothers and sisters. But then we come to verse 13 and the family ascends to Jerusalem for the Passover. And when Jesus went up to Jerusalem, we read in verse 14, he found in the temple those that sold oxen and sheep and doves and the changes of money sitting. And when he had made a scourge of small cords, he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changes money and overthrew the tables. And you can imagine the dramatic entrance of the Lord Jesus Christ in the temple precincts and taking over what was known as the bazaars of Annas, which was set up in the court of the Gentiles conveniently. And these merchants were buying and selling and extorting the people on the basis that they wouldn't allow people to use normal currency. It had to be exchanged into temple currency. So they were able to determine the exchange rates and make a little bit of profit out of the exchange rate because you couldn't use defiled currency in the holy temple. And of course, they had a price tag on the sacrifices that could be offered because it was difficult for people to bring their own sacrifices. They journeyed from all over the place and thousands of people spilled around Jerusalem and its precincts, camping around the city and coming into the temple to worship. And so the price that was on the head of the um, animals that were there was a high price. Well, because, you know, Annas, the high priest, had, you know, made sure that careful inspection was made and these sacrifices were even better than people could raise in their own because they were organic farming and no, no. <laughs> you know they 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 had a premium price Edashim tells us because they suggested that they were better suited for sacrifice than anyone could ever provide uh, from their own farms and so they made money and extorted people and fleeced them and Annas was responsible for this and this was a direct challenge to Annas the high priest and Jesus drove them out And his passion and zeal for his father's house was noted by the apostles who quoted, you'll see in verse 16, quoted from Psalm 69. Um, He said to them, sorry, uh, verse 17. uh, He said to them as he drove them out, take these things hence, make not my father's house a house of merchandise. You can imagine Mary... And his brothers and sisters, who doubtless accompanied him, 
because they were with him in Capernaum. They would have been there. You can imagine them hearing, My Father's house. I'm the Son of God. He's my Father. This is His house. And you have no right to conduct business in my Father's house. My business is the business that's going to be done here, not yours. A house of merchandise. And his disciples remembered that it was written, The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. Before we go to Psalm 69, that's the end of the record of Mary and his brethren continuing with him in his ministry. And Psalm 69 tells us why. And John quotes it, obviously, because he, he sees this as a fulfilment of what was written concerning the zeal of the Lord for his father's house. Psalm 69 is quoting from verse 9. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. But have a look at the verse that precedes that. Because the, word, the verse 9 commences with the word for. And what does the word for mean? The word for means because of this. And what are we directed therefore to when we read the word for? The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. We read in verse 8, I am become a stranger to my brethren and an alien to my mother's children because the zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. And what the psalm tells us, and John quotes it in John chapter 2, is that this was a cause of offence for Jesus' brethren. And they stopped. They commenced with Jesus in his, mission, in his ministry, but stopped at this point because they did not agree that it was any business of his to go challenging the authorities and the establishment of the day. How dare, what authority did he have to go in and take over the proceedings of the temple? Who does he think he is? That was what the elders thought, but that also offended his brethren. It doesn't say Mary was offended, but his brethren. He was ostracised for them because of the zeal of his father's house. He was to them like a stranger. We don't own you anymore. You are not one of, you don't belong to our family. And an alien, that's as remote as you can get from any association. An alien was a foreigner that you had no relationship with to the point they came from another country and was totally remote and unrelated. They disowned their brother, their half-brother at least, because they were offended at what he did when he went into Jerusalem during his ministry at the Passover and cleansed the temple of what he saw there. Now just come to Luke chapter 4 and Jesus' visit to his hometown, Nazareth. And you know this story. Um, it's an amazing, dramatic record of what befell the Lord Jesus Christ as he went back to his hometown during his ministry and preached to his neighbours and acquaintances and possibly even relatives who were there in the synagogue at Nazareth. But Jesus didn't return the same as the Jesus that they had grown up with because we read in chapter 4 
and verse 14, that when Jesus returned, he returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee. This is a different Jesus to the Jesus that they had grown up with. The Jesus that came to the synagogue and as his custom was read and the Jesus that had grown up to the age of 30, this Jesus was a different Jesus. He was now full of the Spirit, we know, as a result of his baptism in Luke chapter 4 and verse 1. And he returned to his hometown in the power of the Spirit. And there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. He was famous by this time, by this point in his ministry. Famous. And he taught in their synagogues and he was glorified of all. Everywhere he went, he was glorified, he was accepted, and he was received. And he came to Nazareth, verse 16, where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. Now, I don't know if any of you have seen pictures or seen the actual Isaiah scroll that's in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. We were there in 2013. And there's this beautiful big scroll. And they handed him a scroll, the scroll of the book of Isaiah. And it says that he found the place where it was written. Now, for those of you who are not aware, the Greek and the Hebrew are similar in the way that the scrolls were transcribed. There is no space between any letters. There is no chapter divisions. There are no verses. It starts from the first letter of the first word and without one space, without a comma, without punctuation, without numbers, divisions, goes right through to the last letter of the last Isaiah chapter 66. And he found a particular verse that related to him that he wanted to read. Now that tells us that he was a man of the book, that he was familiar with the scriptures. We have trouble finding scriptures and we got chapters and verses. He didn't have chapters and verses. He didn't even have punctuation marks because they weren't there. He found the place. He opened the book and found the place where it was written. The spirit of Yahweh is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. He gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And as they looked at him, as he sat in the audience, he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his his mouth. What a beautiful, what a beautiful story of Jesus coming back to the synagogue that he knew so well amongst his relatives and friends, having received fame right throughout that region of being glorified by all. 
And they listened to him reading Isaiah and wondered at the gracious words that proceeded out of his mouth. And then said, isn't this Joseph's son? Joseph's son? Just come across to verse 34. Here's what people that were possessed with devils who were mentally deranged knew about this Jesus of Nazareth. Look at what we have in verse um, 34, the man with the unclean devil. He said with a loud voice, I know thee at the end of verse 34, who thou art, the Holy One of God. What about verse 41? Devils also came out of many crying and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. People with mental disabilities knew who he was. His own people said, isn't he Joseph's son? And that's why he turned to them and spoke to them about Elijah and Elisha, indicting them. There were many lepers in the days of Elijah. Uh, Sorry, many widows in the days of Elijah. I tell you, to none of them was Elijah sent, save to the widow at Sarepta. And there were many lepers in the days of Elisha, but to none of them was Elisha sent, sent na- save Naaman the leper. He was indicting them because Elijah and Elisha lived in days when there was apostasy in Israel and Gentiles showed more faith than Jews. And how do you think that they felt when he said that? The synagogue, verse 28, all they in the synagogue when they heard these things were filled with wrath and rose up and grabbed hold of him and dragged him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill whereon their city was built and they were going to murder him and execute him by throwing him off the cliff head first. That's what happened when he went to his own town, to his own synagogue. Let me just read to you the words um, of Matthew's, Matthew's account. Matthew says of this same account in Matthew 13 and verse 54 to 58 that they were offended in him. And in the end of that section, Jesus said, a prophet is not without honour, save or except in his own country and in his own house. People honour a prophet except the people of his own village and the people of his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And what would you do if you were treated like that, brothers and sisters? By your own family and acquaintances and your own house. So the brothers and sisters of Jesus are included in this. They gave him no honour. What would you do if they held you, dragged you out of the synagogue and were to throw you headlong over a cliff and watch you die? Well, I'll tell you what he could have done. He could have let them do it. And allowed the scriptures, which he quotes in his temptation, the angel shall keep charge of thee, lest thou dash thy foot against a stone. 
And once they saw him drop, immediately just appear right in front of them and say, now what are you going to do? He could have. But he didn't. He did no mighty works there because of their unbelief. So if you think, you know, my faith is not that strong. I'm not really that believing. I really need, more than anyone else in this audience, something really dramatic to convince me. No. No, that's not going to make a difference. If it did, Jesus would have done it. He had the scripture to support that kind of response. He just froze them so that he could walk through the midst of them until he got clear away and then he unfroze them. They stood there suspended in suspended animation, couldn't do anything, so he could just simply walk and escape without them being able to touch him. And the reason why, brothers and sisters, is because we've got black print on white pages. And if we don't hear those words that proceed forth from God and develop faith in God based on those words, no miracle is going to make us change. Jesus told that in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You remember the story? And the rich man said to Lazarus, sorry, said to Abraham, send Lazarus back from the dead to my brothers because if he goes and and rises from the dead and he appears to my brothers, they won't end up in this place of torment with me. And Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And then the protest comes from the rich man. No, 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 Moses and the prophets. What's that going to do? Like that's the books of the Old Testament. You think that's going to change my brothers and make them repent and prevent them from being where I am in eternal torment? I mean, a miracle, raise Lazarus from the dead. And do you know that parable of the rich man and Lazarus was given weeks before Jesus actually raised a man called Lazarus from the dead. And what did the Jews do? They tried to kill Lazarus because he was evidence that Jesus was Messiah. It was a prophecy of what was going to actually happen. But what's the lesson of the parable? If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded even if a dead man rises from the dead. So, you see, brothers and sisters, seeing the hand of God at work was only a benefit given to people that had faith. Where did their faith generate from? Where does faith come from? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. If we lack faith, if we lack the, the persuasion that will lead to real change in our life, don't wait for a miracle to happen. Open the scriptures and receive the faith that comes from the word of God and the recognition of the Son of God, the word made flesh. What an amazing incident and the way Jesus was treated from his own country and from his own house. So let's move to the next uh, little section of, the, of our story, which is now in Mark chapter 3. If you would please join me in looking at that reference. In Mark chapter 3, we have the selection of the 12 that Jesus chose. Out of his disciples, he named 12 of them apostles that they might be his personal ambassadors. And in verse 19, they went into an house... 
And the multitude came together so that they could not so much as eat bread. And in verse 21, when his friends heard of it, now the Greek word friends is actually a word which the margin says kinsmen actually means the closest relatives. And that, of course, is a reference to his brothers. When they heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him. The word lay hold is actually a word which means to seize or to arrest or to detain. So his brothers went out to detain or arrest him and take him away from his public ministry and put some restraints on him because they said he is beside himself. Now his enemies thought that that the reason for that was that he was possessed by Beelzebub and his brothers sadly thought almost the same. He is beside himself. Just come to Psalm 50 and see an expression uh, in Psalm 50 concerning the relationship that Jesus had with his brothers and maybe James who was the oldest of his brothers maybe he took the lead and there's to me indications that that could be the case in Psalm 50 and let's just uh, read from verse um, just to save time Let's read from verse, um, well maybe we'll just read verse 20 and 21. Thou sittest and speakest against thy brother, thou slanderest thine own mother's son. And I could imagine James being the spokesman and here's a psalm which relates to us, the animosity. What's my next slide? Yeah, we can develop this the animosity that developed between Jesus and James and the brethren. These things hast thou done, and I kept silence. Thou thoughtest that I was altogether such an one as thyself. But Jesus was not the same as James. James was the son of Mary and Joseph. Jesus was the son of God. But I will reprove thee and set them in order before thine eyes. Now consider this, ye that forget God, lest I tear you in pieces and there be none to deliver. And the day came when Jesus was going to meet with James. And this whole episode was going to be resolved and the animosity between them. But it developed sadly. When we come to Matthew chapter 12, we have an indication of just how Divided the family had become. Maybe that is a little bit premature, but that's okay because we will develop the idea of the two seeds in a moment. So in Matthew chapter 12, we have... Um, I'm not going to go into the background again just to save time. But let's just commence at verse 46. While he yet talked to the people... Behold, his mother and his brethren stood without desiring to speak with him. He was in a home, as we um, know if we just combine all of the records together of this incident. So he's talking to people inside the house and his mother and his brethren stood without desiring to speak with him. In my mind, I see the brothers making the first attempt and that attempt in Mark chapter 3 failed. So... You can imagine James and the brothers thinking, ah, see, we got it wrong. We should have brought Mary with us because he's not going to say no, no to Mary. 
He'd say no to us because he'd think, well, we're envious and jealous of his fame and so we have reasons to, you know, um, to, to, to be thought of as, as, you know, not respecting him, but he's going to respect his mother. So they bring Mary on the second attempt. Behold, it's a point of noting something of great significance. His mother and his brethren stood outside desiring to speak with him. And the message got passed through uh, until it reached Jesus and one who was close enough to speak to Jesus interrupted his, his, um, his speaking to the people and said, Excuse me, Jesus, um, there's just something I need to tell you. I've just received a message. Behold, thy mother and thy brethren stand without and they want to speak with you. And he answering and said unto him that told him, Who is my mother? And who are my brethren? And he stretched forth his hand towards his disciples. The disciples were those that were following him in his ministry. And one of those disciples, as we'll find out, is Salome, who is the sister of Mary, the mother of James and John. She was one, if you look at Luke chapter 8, you'll see a number of women that are mentioned along with the disciples that followed Jesus and ministered unto him of their substance. And Salome, Mary's sister, was a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. As were other women that were there, and there, there are a number of them mentioned uh, in uh, Luke chapter 8. I think it's Luke chapter 8. Let me just, just check because if you're writing these down uh, and it's a wrong reference. Yes, it is. Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. So, he stretched forth his hand towards his disciples that were with him in the room, and he said, have a look. And you'll see who I'm pointing to. I'm pointing to my mother. And I'm pointing to my brethren. And he was not pointing to Mary. And he was not pointing to James and Joseph and Simeon and Judah and his sisters. He was pointing to his disciples. And he said, For whosoever shall do the will of my Father, the same... My Father, which is in heaven, I beg your pardon. The same is my brother and sister and mother. Now that was hard. That was a public statement that Jesus made that his real mother and his real brethren were his disciples and not Mary and not James and Joseph and his brothers and sisters. And that's not easy for us to Experience if we've been in a situation where the truth separates us from our blood relatives. But Jesus said, I come not to bring peace, but a sword. And that sword is going to set a man at variance with his fellow men. It's going to divide households because there are only two seeds, brothers and sisters and young people. There are only two classifications of people that walk upon the face of this earth. I don't care what colour they are. I don't care what nationality they are, what gender they are, what religious persuasion, what occupation. They are not divided into any other than two classifications of people. Seed of the serpent, seed of the woman. And the sword of the spirit maintains the enmity that God declared from the very beginning between the two. Because Cain was a worshipper of God. So don't think that the seed of the serpent are just people in the world generally. 
The seed of the serpent are those that believe in false doctrine and worship God falsely. They are a religious system that misrepresent the truth of God and turn it into a lie. That's the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent primarily, although it includes all opposition to God, primarily in the scriptures is religious opposition that stands against the truth and true worship. And Cain and Abel were the first two worshippers that fell into that classification. And it's important for us to understand that. The truth is what determines whether we're in the seat of the woman class or not. Jesus said to Pilate, I came to bear witness unto the truth. And they that are of the truth hear my voice. And here were disciples that heard his voice. They were his real family. That's the seed of the woman. He was the head of the seed of the woman. And he gathered together unto him those that were of the woman's class, seed of the woman's class. Sadly, he's not recognising his natural family as included in that because they were not standing with him. And we know that they needed to be converted in order for that matter to be reconciled. But for now, that enmity existed. And Jesus had to publicly disown his mother and his brethren and he experienced what he preached when he said everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or fathers or sisters or mothers or wife or children or lands for my sake shall receive an hundredfold and inherit everlasting life he that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. These were not just things he preached, brothers and sisters. These were experiences he lived in his life. And it is important for us to understand, if we are going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, we have to put our spiritual family, the ecclesia, ahead of any natural nuclear family we might have, even though we might need to be civil and respectful. When it comes to the truth, they are not of us. There's only one family that God is concerned about and that is the seed of the woman redeemed by Jesus Christ himself. And Jesus said, that is who is my mother and who is my brethren in the truth. Luke chapter 11. In Luke chapter 11, this incident occurs, I believe, at the same time as the approach of Mary and the brethren. And I think we can determine that by the context, but I'm not going to go into that for now. You can uh, read that and make the parallel between the records and determine that for yourself. But as in verse 27 of Luke 11, it came to pass as he spake these things, a certain woman in the company lifted up her voice and said unto him, Blessed is the womb that bare thee and the paps which thou hast sucked. Oh, I've got out of... uh I've got out of kilter with my slides, so please forgive me. What a, a wonderful commendation. It is in line with the commendation that Gabriel and Elizabeth had made to Mary that we considered in Luke chapter 1. Wouldn't that be appropriate for Mary to receive this commendation publicly? Blessed is the womb that bare thee, the paps which thou hast sucked. And Jesus said in verse 28, But, he said, Yea, rather, instead, he said, instead, rather, blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. 
So he didn't even allow that blessing to come upon Mary at that point because the blessing that was given to her, sadly, was now no longer applicable because she had allowed her sons and daughters to take her away from following the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ momentarily removed that blessing that was placed upon her and called upon her, and I don't know if she was in hearing uh, distance about this statement, she certainly received the message of the house uh, in Matthew chapter 12, but there was an appeal and another piercing of the sword. Mary, you will be blessed if you hear the word of God and keep it. And of course, he was the word made flesh and she was not yet fully convinced that he was the son of God as she ought to have been. John chapter 7. Here's the animosity in the family uh, and just the extent of that animosity. Oh, let me just say that that uh, reference that we just considered was, in my count, the fourth piercing of the sword. Sorry if I uh, didn't make that clear. So we move now to the Feast of Tabernacles, which John describes in his seventh chapter. We see in verse 2 the Feast of the uh, Jews. The Tabernacles uh, was at hand. Now Jews, the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. Now we know in verse... Um, Oh, sorry, John chapter 5 and verse 16 to 18, that the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to lay hands on him. And the animosity of the Jews against the Lord Jesus Christ continued from John chapter 5 onwards. And that continues throughout the chapters of John. There are many times that we read in John's record that the Jews sought to kill Jesus. Of course, we saw there was an attempt on his life in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. But Judea became enemy territory for the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just Nazareth. It became enemy territory because we read in John chapter 7 verse 1 that the Jews were still seeking to kill him. And for that reason... Jesus remained in Galilee. He could not walk in Jewry because the Jews sought to kill him. So if you knew that the Jews sought to kill you, you would have to be very careful if you were the son of God to make sure that that was not allowed to happen until the hour was come. And that, of course, coincided with the 14th of Abib, as we know prophetically, that was required. Jesus came into the city of Jerusalem on the 10th day of Abib, the same day that the Israelites penned up the lambs. For four days, he was subject to the interrogation of the Jewish elders as they pumped him with questions, trying to find fault in him, and they couldn't. So he was inspected for the same four days as the Passover lambs were inspected. And on the 14th day at even, between the evenings, the Passover lamb was slain. He couldn't allow himself to fall in their hands before that time, even though they would have killed him prior to that time. So he had to carefully manage his affairs in relationship to his enemies. Now in verse 3 we read in John chapter 7, His brethren therefore said unto him, 
Depart hence and go into Judea, that thy disciples may also see the works that thou doest. For there is no man that doeth anything in secret, and he himself seeketh to be known openly. If thou do these things, show thyself to the world. In other words, we're happy for them to kill you. Just go. But they couched it in terms that made them look like they had genuine motives. Did they have genuine motives? Well, the scripture saw right through them. Because John records under inspiration, for neither did his brethren believe in him. They knew he was born by the power of the Holy Spirit. They had factual evidence of his divine birth. They knew that he was special. They would have been told about all of the angelic visitations and the shepherds and the wise men and all of the amazing events that happened that proved to them that this was Messiah, the Son of God. But he did not meet their expectations. And because they were offended at the course of action that he took in fulfilling his father's business, the enmity got that bad that Judea being enemy territory and the Jews made it publicly known that they sought Jesus to kill him, his brethren said, you should go to Judea. You should make sure everyone sees you. Because, I mean, you wouldn't want your identity to be hid, would you? You wouldn't want the world to know. That is the enmity that existed in the family between Jesus and his brothers and maybe James being chief as the oldest. Because who was the heir of the throne of David? James. Remember, we said that the lineage in Matthew chapter 1 takes us to Joseph, who was the heir that would have sat on David's throne had not the kingdom of Judah lost its independence. And who was heir to the throne after Joseph? Joseph and Mary's firstborn son, James. And here's a man who might have thought, well, maybe God can use me because Jesus has failed in his mission. Here I am, God. Obviously, this son has disappointed you, but I'm right here, ready for you to use me because I am, after all, the firstborn son of the firstborn son of the lineage of the dynasty of David and heir to the throne of David. You can use me instead. That's the animosity that existed between Jesus and James. And Jesus said to them, you can die at any time. You can die in a minute. You can die in an hour. doesn't matter when you die. Your time is always ready. And we must remember, I'll tell you a funny story. Oh, I don't have a lot of time. Just a quick story. This tells you how astute a particular sister was who picked me up when I misquoted the words of James when James said, we ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall do this or that. You remember the, the reference? Well, a sister, a very astute older sister said to me when I said that to her in the discussion, do you know that that's not what James said? And I'm thinking, we ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall do this or that. She said, no, that's not what James said. Go and read it. And so I opened up the chapter and James says, we ought to say, if the Lord will, and we shall live we shall do this or that. James had just said, what is your life? It's but a vapour. It's not, if the Lord will, we will do this or that. No, if the Lord will, we will be alive. Because in him we live and move and have our very being. We don't know where we will be tomorrow. 
Today is the day of opportunity. Our time is always ready. So let's make sure we don't misquote James just like I told you I did. Because we can't assume that we're going to have the full length of days that is allotted to us. We don't know. But Jesus said, I, I, I can't go now. I can't go there because my time is not yet come. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that the works thereof are evil. There's another confirmation that they were the seed of the serpent class and he was the seed of the woman class. The world loved them, but it hated Jesus because he was prepared to stand up and testify that the works thereof are evil. The world he's talking about is the Jewish world. That's who he stood up against, the false worship of the Jewish structure. Go you up to the feast, I go not up to the feast, for my time is not yet full come. And just to save time, it was the Feast of Tabernacles, and I'm just going to exclude some reference to the significance of the uh, Feast of Tabernacles, but you know it was uh, the time when the children of Israel dwelt in booths celebrating their deliverance from, from Egypt. But what is interesting is during that feast, I just want to highlight a few things um, that Jesus' brothers would have listened to that John records. Now in verse 40, uh, actually before we go to verse 40, just have a look at verse 31. Many of the people believed on him. Uh, Sorry, no, please forgive me. Just go back a little bit further. Verse 30. Then they sought to take him, but no man laid on his, their hands on him because his hour was not yet come. Now, if James and the brothers saw that there was a delegation of, Roman, of, of um, Jewish soldiers that were sent by the Pharisees and the chief priests to arrest Jesus and they weren't able to for some reason because his hour was not yet come, they would have known what he meant when he said, my time is not yet come. They would have seen evidence of that. And verse 31, many believed on him and said, When Christ cometh, will he do more miracles than these which this man doeth? I mean, how much more evidence did you need that this was the actual Christ that they were waiting for? Verse 32, The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent another delegation of officers to arrest him. And we know that When they came back, they came back empty-handed, verse 45. Then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and the chief priests and Pharisees said to them, Why haven't you brought him? And they said, We've never heard a man speak like this man. So here was Jewish officers that were arrested by the words of Jesus Christ, and they couldn't bring themselves to arrest him because they were arrested by him. And James and the brothers were watching two failed attempts to arrest and detain Jesus. And Jesus said, I can't go now because my hour is not yet come. Just have a look at verse um, 40. Many of the people, therefore, when they heard this saying, and um, I'm, I know I'm skipping some things just because of time, the Lord Jesus Christ is referring to the living waters that would flow from him. And we could go to um, Isaiah 44, but we won't now, and look at the context of our Lord Jesus Christ as the living water. But many people, therefore, when they heard this saying, said, of a truth, this is the prophet. 
And that, of course, is the prophet referred to in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, the prophet like unto Moses that Yahweh would raise up. Of a truth, they said, this is true. There's no doubt in our mind. This is the prophet that was promised to come like unto Moses. You imagine James and the brothers listening to this. Others said, this is the Christ. The term Christ means the Messiah, the anointed. James and the brothers listening. Some said, hang on, how can he be the prophet? And how can he be the Christ? Because doesn't he come out of Galilee? I mean, the scripture says that Christ cometh of the seed of David and out of the town of Bethlehem where David was. Who in that crowd knew that Mary and Joseph were forced by a Roman census to move from Galilee and Nazareth in Galilee down to Bethlehem so that Jesus could be born in Bethlehem. Who knew? James, Simon, Joseph, his brothers. They knew. This was all for their sakes. And some of them would have taken him, but no man laid hands on him. All of these things were done so that the Lord's brothers could see and know that there was no doubt by divine providence that Jesus Christ was the prophet like unto Moses and the Messiah and the seed of David that was born in Bethlehem. So there was a division among the people because of him in verse 43. And that division is the two seeds that we spoke of. Those that believed on him and those that believed not on him. There's the division of our two seeds. And as we conclude our our session this, uh, this afternoon, it really is up to us to learn the lessons and the exhortations of our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ because we are going to be in one of those two places. Actually, can I just have 30 seconds, Brother Tony? Sorry, there's one thing I forgot that I wanted to just consider. That is, for the benefit of those who are interested in John chapter 8, that's the, uh, we alluded to some references about an accusation of Jesus being an illegitimate son, born to Mary by an unknown father. And of course, they attempted by that to discredit the Lord Jesus Christ because under the law, an illegitimate son could not enter the sanctuary for 10 generations. So they tried to stage this um, scene with this woman caught in adultery, which is totally staged in order to secure identifying Mary as a woman who was also uh, a woman who should have been stoned like this woman and identify Jesus as an illegitimate son and therefore discredit his messiahship. This was all going on in John chapter 8. And I haven't got time, obviously, to expound it, but it is incredible to see the wisdom with which Jesus handled this very explosive situation to defend Mary, to defend his integrity, to act as the law of Yahweh determined, because he never compromised the law of Yahweh in dealing with this woman. But this is the chapter which has all of the discussion which follows. They said to him, where's your father? You don't know who your father is, do you? We're not born of fornication like you are. And say we not well that thou art a Samaritan. You're probably 
probably Mary slept with a Samaritan, and you're actually a Samaritan, who of course was a, a, a people that they detested because they had a mixed up religion, which was a combination of apostate uh, Israel in the north, the ten tribes' religion, and the Assyrians who merged together into a mixed up religion, of which Jesus said in John 4, you know not what you worship. That's the dynamic of John chapter 8. And we'll leave the story there and pick it up with our Sunday School scholars tomorrow as we come to the foot of the cross. Thank you.